Stark Law compliance requires a focus on emerging trends, including commercial reasonableness, directed referrals, non-physician practitioner supervision, call coverage, quality, and loss arrangements. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today is episode number two in Stark Law Emerging Trends, and as I indicated in the first episode, uh, this episode and the first episode originated out of a presentation that I made in New Orleans at the American Health Lawyers Association Physician and Hospital Conference and the Academic Medical Center Conference. And so, as I said in episode number one, feel free to give me an email. I will be happy to send to you the PowerPoint presentation. Again, my email address is bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com. That's bobwadecaptainintegrity, it's all one word, at gmail.com. And there's there may be some other handouts that I will be referencing that you can also email me, and I will be happy to send you a copy of those. So in the first episode of Stark Law Emerging Trends in Stark Integrity Podcast. I covered the approval process, fair market value emerging trends, the 90th percentile compensation, and independent contractors. And in this episode of Emerging Trends under the Stark Law, I will be covering commercial reasonableness, directed referrals, non-physician practitioner supervision, call coverage, quality and value, and loss arrangements. And if you have not listened to the first episode of Stark Law Emerging Trends, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, But if you're listening to this episode for issues specific that I'm going to be covering, that's great. So the first issue is commercial reasonableness. And I had one entire episode discussing commercial reasonableness And as I've stated previously and stated at this conference, was that commercial reasonableness is really becoming one of the pinnacle issues that the Quitam Bar and the government is focusing on. Because you can have something that's fair market value, yet not be commercially reasonable. And a couple of points just with commercial reasonableness that I believe to be emerging trend is that you're looking at the arrangement to determine whether a reasonable like facility, and again, I use hospitals as an example, but would a reasonable like hospital enter into this arrangement, both from a medical perspective as well as from a business perspective? And secondly, 
I look at whether or not business risk is shifting and shifting inappropriately from, let's say, a physician group to a hospital. Uh, Because if uh, you do have a business risk or liability that is shifting from a referral source to a DHS or designated health service entity, then that shifting of the business risk may not be commercially reasonable. So an example of business risk shifting that may not be commercially reasonable would be, let's say that you have a referring physician group that owns a very expensive piece of equipment. And that physician group is keeping the equipment busy only about 50% of the time. Well, obviously, there's a carrying cost of that equipment. So if it's sitting idle 50% of the time, then the physician group is not maximizing the income and possibly would be having income that is deemed to be less than either rental payments or any type of mortgage payments that they would have uh, on the piece of equipment. And if that physician group goes to the hospital and asks the hospital to master lease the equipment at fair market value, and if that equipment still remains only 50% used, then now you have a business risk that has shifted from a referring physician group to the DHS entity, and now the DHS entity would be taking the loss instead of the physician group. So in that case, that would not be commercially reasonable for the hospital or DHS entity to master lease that piece of equipment. So other issues dealing with commercial reasonableness, and these are questions that need to be asked for every physician financial arrangement is, first off, what is the legitimate business purpose of the arrangement? Does the arrangement further the DHS entity's mission or pursuit of its strategic goals? Can you, and this is more focusing on services, can we justify the amount of services being rendered? So by way of example, let's say that uh, the hospital wants to contract with a physician group for a 1,000 hours for a medical directorship, but really only need needs 100 hours. Then technically, even though they're paying fair market value for a 1,000 hours of physician-directed services that would not be commercially reasonable because technically the hospital only needs 100 hours. So that would be an overpayment that would not be commercially reasonable, again, even if the hourly rate was deemed to be fair market value. And the next question, because of the proliferation of the use of non-physician practitioners, is can this service be performed by an NPP? Next is if the services are not going to be rendered on a full-time basis and are either hourly or part-time, is there a mechanism in place to monitor the services to make sure that we can document that the physician or physician group is actually performing those services? Next is, is there a continued need for the service? Let's say that you have an exclusive arrangement with an anesthesiology group. And let's say that the hospital has always paid the anesthesiology group a $1 million stipend because at one point in time, the anesthesiology group showed the DHS hospital that they could not perform the extent of services and still receive fair market value compensation. So in that case, the stipend was warranted. So let's now turn the clock forward five years. Is that still the case? So it's not just because we 
justified the payment of the million-dollar stipend at one point in time? Is there a continued need for that stipend? Is it commercially reasonable to continue to pay that group a million dollars per year for that, that exclusive arrangement? And lastly, from a commercial reasonableness perspective, are the soup services duplicated elsewhere? Is some other provider providing the services in the market, or is this a duplicate? Now, you could still duplicate the service if this is a new area that you wanted to enter into, but that also would factor into the compensation arrangement or terms uh, because you can no longer say that it's the scarcity of the service that is driving the financial arrangement because it's otherwise duplicated elsewhere in the market. And I have a list of those issues, a commercial reasonableness questionnaire or checklist that you can email me and I'll be happy to provide that to you. So commercial reasonableness is more of a qualitative factor, not a quantitative factor. You want to look at the quality of the arrangement. Is it justifiable, both from a business perspective as well as a medical perspective? And usually this is a, a pre-transaction type of assessment. I call it like a red light, green light. So before we even get into the fair market value analysis, can we justify the arrangement? Is it commercially reasonable to even contemplate this type of financial arrangement. And, and if it is, then it meets commercial reasonableness standards. And then we can go on to a more a review of how to put it into operations as well as the fair market value. So as I've indicated previously, and this was emphasized at this conference, is that the rate being paid could be representative of fair market value, but fail a commercial reasonableness analysis. And this is commercial reasonableness has a legal overtone to it. I won't go out and say that only lawyers can provide commercial reasonableness analysis. Surely they can. Uh, but uh, commercial reasonableness is also, you know, looking at what is usual and customary in the market. And then just like I've said before with fair market value, is the commercial reasonableness do documentation, documentation that we believe to be defensible in case the arrangement was ever questioned. Okay, that was a lot about commercial reasonableness. Next, uh, under the Stark Law, and this was emphasized in the final rules that went into effect in January 1 of 2021, is that the contractual arrangement may condition the compensation on directed or mandated referrals, and that it has to be in writing. Uh, so even in an employment arrangement, it has to be in writing, and that directed or mandated referral requirement should not apply if the patient expresses a different preference for a provider or the insurance for the patient does not cover a specific provider, or it is deemed by the physician's best judgment that the referral to a specific provider is not in the patient's best medical interest. Emphasize the word medical because it's the medical interest, not the referring physician's financial interest. Another emerging issue is whether or not a employer or a contracting entity, a DHS entity, can actually track and report referrals to a referring physician's. And from my perspective is, yes, you can. It's not illegal per se to provide information regarding the tracking of where the physicians, the compensated physicians referrals are going, uh, but you want to make sure that you stay clear of any type of implication that there's a tie between the reporting of where the referrals are going and compensation and just keep it to the facts. 
I've been involved in situations before where physicians, upon receiving this factual information, believe that it's an idle threat. And as long as it's clear this is not a threat, this is not going to impact your compensation at all, it's just this is information, factual information that we'd like to provide to you regarding where your referrals are going. And this was a key issue uh, that the Quitam Relator in the North Broward case brought up that really the tracking of the referrals was used as a weapon with respect to the compensation to the referring physicians. Then I spent quite a bit of time on non-physician practitioner supervision, and with NPP supervision, you can compensate a physician for the act of supervision. So if they're providing supervision for non-physician practitioners, the act of supervision is a personally performed service. So if you're compensating them for that supervision, then it's a personally performed service. And under state law, some states require a higher degree of supervision for physician assistants versus nurse practitioners. So that may need to come into play as you're determining uh, the amount of compensation. You know, somewhere around fifteen to twenty thousand dollars is seems to be about the average for a physician to supervise a one point zero NPP. And so you can either do that straight, and if you get to the PowerPoint, I go through a formula on how you can prorate the personally performed services by the NPP. So these are the personally performed services by the NPP and credit the supervising physicians for each incremental work RVU performed by the NPP. And in this calculation that I give in the PowerPoint, the credit is a point. 1754 credit for each personally performed service by that NPP. But be very clear here this is not credit for the personally performed services of the NPP. This is credit for the physician's supervision of the NPP. We're just using the WRVUs that are produced by the NPP as a proxy for payment. Uh, so, you know. You can do that, but uh, everybody has to understand it's a proxy for payment. So I'm seeing as an emerging trend some concern or some issues with respect to the compensation of NPPs, and especially, and I've been hammering on this quite a bit from an operational perspective, can we document the fact that the physician is actually providing the required supervision and is available uh, when needed by the NPP? The next emerging trend is call compensation. Call's been around for quite a bit, but we're starting to see a lot more activity in this area. You have to be very clear as to whether or not this is unrestricted call, meaning the physician has to remain in the service area, be available uh, by cell phone, and be available to come into the hospital to provide direct patient care services when requested. That's different from restricted call where the physician has to remain within the walls of the hospital during the time, which obviously makes the compensation higher because he has to be physically present within the hospital during all the times when the physician is providing the restricted call. And now we're starting to see a trend for telephonic call where it is not expected that the physician come to the hospital at any time that the physician's being compensated, but the physician has to remain available by telephone. So by way of example, if the physician normally provides services in Chicago, 
uh, but wants to take a vacation in Cancun. The physician in telephonic call can be on vacation in Cancun, just has to have that cell phone by him or her and be able to respond at all times when called. So there's a, those different areas were discussed or are currently discussed as emerging trends. Obviously, there's benchmark data with respect to restricted and unrestricted call, uh, usually by Sullivan Cotter or MGMA, the Medical Group Management Association, has benchmark data. Sometimes you will have to extrapolate based upon the hourly rate for personally performed services. So if you cannot find good data for a particular specialty or because the number of respondents is so low, then you could calculate compensation for call coverage services uh, based upon the normal hourly rate for direct patient care services. And as a general rule of thumb, if I'm going to calculate the hourly rate based upon a a defensible hourly rate for direct patient care services, I would apply a 25% factor for unrestricted call. And then, again, I'm painting with very broad brushes here that if I'm going to use telephonic call, then it'd be 25% of what I calculated of the unrestricted call. So unrestricted call, 25% of a normal Direct patient care hourly rate, once you calculate the unrestricted, telephonic is somewhere around 25% of that amount. So those, those, there are ways to get there if we can't find direct benchmark documentation. And also some of the other emerging trends in call coverage is physicians providing call coverage at various hospitals. You'll need to make sure that the group has the arrangement within the group that if the physician is providing services at hospital A, then if hospital B calls, the physician can come and respond to hospital B. Obviously, you cannot receive 100% of uh, fair market value at multiple hospitals, hospitals A and B, because uh, if all you have is backup, uh, for hospital B, then that has to be factored in. And usually what I try to do is in my agreements, my medical director call agreements, that I have the physician representing in those call arrangements that they are not providing any other call services at any other hospital. And if they do, they have a responsibility to report that to the contracting hospital and that the financial arrangement would be evaluated at that time. And then for the selection of people to provide the call, usually it's going to be everyone who's on the medical staff for that particular specialty. Obviously, I would not target it only my highest referral sources or my highest referring group or even the largest group. I want to make sure that there's some type of equitable rationale for how I'm selecting the physician to provide those services. Next, I discussed the quality or value compensation arrangements, and there's many ways that you can review these. So these are not value-based arrangements, because obviously with a value-based arrangement, uh, there's a whole episode on, on VBAs, but value-based arrangements, fair market value is not an issue. But with respect to providing value of services, meeting certain quality, patient satisfaction, those type of issues, physicians can be compensated as a bonus, but any part of that compensation still needs to be factored into total cash compensation to make sure that we stay within the total cash compensation fair market value range. 
Uh, I've also created, and the PowerPoint comes up with this methodology, but created a bonus with respect to a patient panel size, where a physician is receiving a bonus for a larger patient panel size, as well as access, uh, paying uh, a bonus for access, like longer hours for the office or opening up on Saturdays or factoring in a 20% open spaces or slots in the schedule uh, so that there could be last-minute appointments available uh, for patients. Then lastly, we talked about loss arrangements, and this is where you look at the physician's compensation and all of the expenses applicable to the physician's professional services to determine whether or not there is a margin being generated. And in recent surveys, and we shared those surveys at the uh, presentation as well as on my PowerPoint, that somewhere around the 50th percentile, we're approaching about $175,000, $200,000 loss per physician. So that would mean in an employed physician arrangement by a hospital, the hospital is taking about $175,000 to $200,000 loss per physician. So that's the average. It's not a margin. It's a loss. So having a loss is not per se inappropriate. It's not per se not commercially reasonable. Uh, but it does need to be analyzed as to why the loss is being generated and whether or not we can sustain the loss uh, from a commercial reasonableness perspective. So there needs to be some pretty vibrant documentation recognizing the loss and then what the organization is doing about decreasing that loss. So now I'm going to turn to the Captain Integrity Punch Points, and I usually only have three. Uh, but uh, this week, I am going to provide a bonus Captain Integrity Punch Point. I know a lot of you are going, woohoo. Uh, anyway, Captain Integrity Punch Point number one commercial reasonableness is a qualitative analysis, not a quantitative analysis. So we look at the business and the medical justification or rationale for the arrangement. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two. You can compensate for non-physician practitioner supervision and for call arrangement, but you need to focus on the work effort for personally performed either NPP supervision or being available and responding for call. So there is personally performed aspects to both NPP supervision and call, and you can compensate a physician for those personally performed aspects. Captain Integrity Punch Point number three is loss arrangements are not per se commercially unreasonable, but they need to be analyzed and documented as to why a loss arrangement is being experienced. And now for the bonus, Captain Integrity Punch Point number four is quality and value compensation needs to be carefully constructed and monitored for meeting outcome objectives. This is the auditing aspect of those type of compensation components. If you have any type of value or quality uh, arrangement that you just need to make sure there's a mechanism to monitor and to document and to compensate. And what I, what we as healthcare lawyers don't want to hear is that call that said, we set all of this up, but we were not able to monitor and track. And therefore, even though the physicians worked, uh, we can't justify whether or not they meet all of the requirements, and but we still want to pay them the full bonus. 
Well, for not monitoring, tracking, and documenting that they fulfilled the expectation of those quality or value components, it would be very challenging uh, to compensate the physician for reaching those objectives without meeting the fair market value requirements. So fair market value becomes a, a critical key in meeting those objectives is critical in order to ensure that you're compensating the physician appropriately as set in advance in that compensation contractual arrangement. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.